Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod from Summer League in Las Vegas. My guest, the new head coach of the Charlotte Hornets, James Borrego. Stay with us. Here at Summer League now again with James Borrego, the new head coach of the Charlotte Hornets. You get used to hearing that. You wake up and say, I'm a head coach. I do. I I remind my family all the time, uh, head coach, daddy. (laughs) Is that how they're addressing you? Yes, no more dad, uh, head coach. Uh, (laughs) How's it going, head coach? So uh, it feels good. I mean, we're thrilled. We're excited. Um, You know, to be one of 30 is a, a special deal. So I don't take that lightly. We're in Vegas, a summer league, and you, we were talking just before we went on about you were in the coaches meetings, NBA head coaches meetings. And now, not everybody is here, but it's different when you walk in as a head coach. And you just said it like one of 30. You think of high school coaches you had and great coaches, college coaches. And I remember Jeff Van Gundy told me this once, and I think Dave Checkett said it to him when he was becoming the Knicks head coach. And I think he said something like, we know who the best 400 players in the world are. It's very clear. Hmm. Are the 30 NBA head coaches the best 30 coaches in all of basketball? Maybe, maybe not, but like you appreciate, sure. right? Cause there's so many great coaches at so many levels. No question. I mean, there, there's coaches out there that have worked as hard as me, as smart as me, have as much experience, if not more, that may never get this opportunity, you know? So that's why I want to maximize this opportunity. I, I know how fortunate I am, but I never set off on this journey you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago to become an NBA head coach. You know, I was really just trying to find a college job coming out of uh, USD, uh, graduate assistant, looking for a job, no intentions of really even getting to the NBA. I just wanted to be a third or fourth assistant in college. But I, you know, I look back at all the people that helped me get to this point, uh, the coaches, the players, uh, the fortune just to get to San Antonio changed my life forever. But even when I got to San Antonio, San Antonio, you look at the, the people around me, the, the coaches that were there. There was a long list of coaches that I learned from, but it was hard to break even into the bench in San Antonio. That's why I had to go to New Orleans, you know. Um, but for me, it was always about that next step, you know, getting better, making that jump. Uh, but never with the intentions of really being an NBA head coach. And that sort of turned when I got to Orlando. I want to talk more about that sort of uh, San Antonio years and, and the influence and, and what that meant to you. But signing Tony Parker or, or getting the commitment, uh, I don't think he signed the contract as of when we're doing the pod, but right. for you to start a new program and try to integrate the things that you believe in and, and what your program is going to be about, to have Tony Parker to come in to help you do that means what? You can't put a price or a value on this. To bring Tony, uh, a player of his caliber, a Hall of Fame, four-time NBA champion, six-time All-Star, into a program we're trying to establish is huge for me. Somebody I'm familiar with, someone I know, someone I trust, someone I know that has my back when I leave that locker room, You know, someone that Kemba, Malik Monk, uh, Devonte Graham can look to every day um, as an example. It's invaluable. You can't put a price tag on that. So uh, we feel very fortunate to add Tony. He's excited about this move. Um, I know it's not easy for him because we know what he means to San Antonio. Uh, he'll always be a spur. I recognize that and we embrace that. Um, but I'm excited about what this year looks like for Tony, for me, and for this group. 
what were the conversations you had with Kemba Walker about, hey, we have a chance to bring Tony in. How do you feel about it? Talk about what Tony's role would be in, you know, playing behind Kemba. Well, Kemba's initial reaction when I brought it up to him was the first thing he said to me is, I get to learn from Tony Parker. Wow. You know, you're talking about an all-star, you know, 28-year-old that's in his prime to say, I get to play with Tony Parker. I get to learn from him. Right then I knew, you know, this could be really good for us. So he's excited about it. On the floor, I see Tony backing up Kemba. That's, you know, 14 to 16 minutes a night as the backup point guard. The other part is closing games with these two potentially. As you know, this group has played well into fourth quarters. They had a plus point differential last year. The problem was closing games in the fourth quarter. Who's going to play next to Kemba Walker? When they take the ball out of Kemba Walker's hands, who's there to play make? Who's there to facilitate? And I think having Tony there allows us some things to do there in the fourth quarter. If we get to a close game, Tony's been there. He's won four NBA championships. He's won playoff series. This organization hasn't won a playoff series in 19 years. We have a player that's won four NBA championships walking and saying, this is how we do it. If you want to get better, here are the steps to do it every single day. That's more than anything I can say as a coach to these guys. He's an example. So, you know, we're very excited, I think, on the court, off the court. And I know our players are ready to get to work with them. Where do you start when you get hired in Charlotte and you say, okay, you know, they're changing the code on... You know, my ID badge at one Spurs lane and I'm, I'm <laughs> They changed headed. it quick, by the way. They, yeah. changed, they changed it real quick. Yeah. On me. There's so many things that you now are responsible for that you've got to address right mm-hmm. away as a head coach. Where did you start and who maybe gave you maybe some of the best ideas of mm-hmm. what do I need to attack right away? Is it staff? Is it relationships with the current players? Is it figuring out who we need to add, right. style of play with this roster? All of it? Right. Well, Pop said this to me. As soon as I got hired, uh, the first conversation uh, with Pop over the phone was, get to Kimba Walker. That's, that's the number one relationship right now. You have to solidify. He needs to know you're you're here. You back him. Uh, you're going to have a relationship with him. And then build it from there. Get to know the players. Sit down with them. Have a meal with them. And I've done that. I've sat and had a meal with every single player on our roster, whether it's in their city, their home, uh, or in Charlotte. A number of our players have been in Charlotte, so it's been easy for me to to get to them. But the the number one thing I felt like I could control was that relationship piece, beginning that uh, foundation. Um, it's something I value. I've seen in San Antonio. I understand how that works. Um, the X's and O's are great. The staff is great. That's, that's important, but there's nothing like the relationship between the head coach and the players. So pop was very instrumental in that. So that was the number one uh, priority. And then it was really looking at the staff, you know, who, who, who out there balanced who I am, my experiences, my inexperiences, and really identified a, a pool of, you know, 15 to 20 candidates um, that could really balance me as, as a, a new head coach. So those two things were the, the uh, top priorities, uh, to get out in front of the players and then, you know, start working on the staff and really connecting with, with Mitch as well, because we didn't have a history before this. We didn't know each other as I interviewed in Charlotte. 
I didn't know Michael Jordan. I didn't know Buzz Peterson. I didn't know any of the, of this group. So we just started spending a lot of time together, Mitch and I, dinners, uh, you know, in the office, on the phone, texting. It was like a, you know, it's like a new relationship here that we're going to try to build. And, um, this is very important. It's like, it's like a marriage right now. We're, we're, we're working at it. We're sort of in that honeymoon stage, but it's going to take time and it's not easy. I've seen organization. I've been a part of organizations where that relationship has been or can be neglected. You take it for granted, but this is something I'll be very intentional about building, uh, with Mitch and his group. And so far we've, uh, you know, been off to a good start. The process of interviewing for head jobs and you interviewed for several of them. You were bouncing around. Your whole staff was in San Antonio. And I'm curious, <laughs> here you were, you, Edere Messina, Ime Adoka, even Becky Hammond, mm-hmm. were all interviewing at the same time, in many cases, for the same jobs. Mm. What was that like in your office? What was that dynamic like when... Now you're competing with somebody and you're, are the conversations as open and free? Was, was there a natural tension to that? And, and did you have to all sort of address it with each other to not let it become something that impacted right. the chemistry of the group? Well, we weren't trading notes. I can say that. <laughs> we, were, we weren't trading notes. We weren't, you know, passing along tips or, you know, talking uh, about those teams. But we were very open with each other. I think that's where, it's always been that way with that, that staff in San Antonio. It's a very open, um, collaborative group. So to, you know, we weren't trying to hide things from one another. Uh, we were talking about, you know, where are you going? Where am I going? Good luck to you. You know, and, uh, it's funny. One would leave a city. Here would come another one into a city. Did you pass any of them in a hotel? Somebody was on the way in. You were on the way out in any of the places? I didn't, but a, f- a few of the other guys or, or uh, girls did. Yeah, I, I know that that did happen. You know, and that's how these interview things work. You never know. I mean, they there's a, there's a long list of candidates. And, you know, we're fortunate that, you know, I think four of us were interviewing to be head coaches. And I'm sure those... those uh, I left one out. Monty Williams, and who Monty was Williams in the front was office, right. was interviewing. Yeah. You know, someone who I worked for, who gave me a shot in this league, I... You know, I think the world of Monty and he's going to get his shot again uh, here very soon. So, yeah, here you had five spur assistants. And I think it, you know, it must have been a, even more awkward for Pop and RC to take these calls to, you know, navigate through this whole uh, experience. You talk about sort of growing in that environment there. And Mike Budenholzer, who Mike was on the other day and came up video room like you did and a lot of guys who've come up through the video room and either stayed in san antonio or or moved on and coached somewhere else guys have said to me that as difficult as it is to go from assistant coach to head coach in the nba going from video coordinator or the video room to an assistant coach on pop staff who now has to sit in the meeting with him and give his opinion or figure out where do i say something Hmm. without getting blown up or sounding like he doesn't want you to talk too much, but he doesn't want you silent either. Is that as difficult of a process as you might face in the business when you look back? Well, and I'll take you back even a step further. Going from an assistant video guy to becoming the head video guy for me was a major step as well. For not having really any interaction with Pop the first year to my second year being the head video guy, now interacting with him on a daily basis, that was a major step for me. You know, being in the room with Pop for an hour, two hours at a time, watching film with him one-on-one, 
was a major step. But once you become a, a, an assistant coach in San Antonio, you got to find your way through this. You know, you got to navigate your, your your way through this uh, group, and it's not easy. I mean, there were some heavy personalities, heavy debate. You know, this was a strong group of, of personalities, and you know, we had PJ Carlissimo, Mike Budenholzer, Brett Brown. Uh, I remember Mario Ellie, Don Newman. Um, you had Chip England to the group. You know, you you have to infuse yourself into the group, and Pop wants you to. You you have you can't just sit back and be silent, but you also have to have the balance of is it time to speak? Uh, someone else may have the, the 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 platform at a certain time. Ultimately, Pop has the final say. But the thing I appreciate about Pop and that group is everybody's opinions valued. It's expected. Um, he's looking for it. And I think really when I came back the second time around, I think Pop saw me in a different light. I had these experiences in New Orleans, in Orlando, and I brought him a new perspective, a fresh perspective that he probably didn't know I had, you know, when I was there before. So these last three, three years have been very valuable, you know, trying to work through it with Pop and uh, bring something to the group that maybe they needed or wanted. Um, but yeah, it's a fine balance between when to speak, when not to speak. And that's a tough decision. And this, I think this happens in a lot of walks of life where you have to leave somewhere to come back again. They mm-hmm. just see you as the young guy. Right. And that you have to go somewhere else, get on the floor and coach, do some things to come back. But there's also part of you going, I don't want to leave San Antonio. Like sure. maybe I could just stay here and keep working right. my way up. That, that's a tough call. It was, you know, and, and you know, we were, chasing championships every single year. But I, I really believed in my spirit. I had to go to grow. I had to get out of San Antonio and really make that next step. And Monty gave me that opportunity in New Orleans to get on the bench at a, at a young age, to you know get my feet wet on the floor, touching these guys, uh, delivering scouting reports, uh, being one of his main assistants. I learned probably just as much in my time away from San Antonio as I did in San Antonio, because you, you have to figure it out out there, you know, in new Orleans, you know, I probably went from one of the most stable organizations in all of sports to maybe one of the most unstable, uh, being owned by the NBA in new Orleans. You learn through those experiences. It's prepared me to be this head coach. I am today having experienced what I experienced in new Orleans. And then to go to Orlando, another experience where they had just, traded their top player. It was a rebuild. Those three years uh, really shaped and defined who I am today as a coach as well. And then you add the last three years. I have the fortune. I'm not sure there's another San Antonio assistant that started in San Antonio, left, and went back to be on Pop's staff. And that's why I'm really thankful that, that Pop, you know, Pop could have hired anyone at that point. I, I had two or three job offers leaving Orlando at other uh, places, and Pop said, no, I, I want you to come back. I, I want you to be one of my top assistants, and that meant a lot to me when he said that. But I And I said this to Pop as soon as I got there. I said, Pop, I'm different. I'm not JB of old. You know, I'm coming in with, with five years of experience in a different place. I got a new fire in my belly coming off, you know, being an interim head coach in Orlando. Uh, I felt different coming back to San Antonio. 
But I also came back looking at from the perspective of this is a very special place in San Antonio. I get the opportunity to have started there, went away, did some graduate work away, and now I get to come back. What makes this place special? And that's really what I looked at the last three years. You coached 30 games as an interim coach in Orlando. What is it like to be an interim coach in the NBA? Stressful. Stressful. I mean, it is, you know, you, you, you're never prepared for that moment. You, you just, you're thrown into it and you got to either sink or swim. Nobody prepared me for that, you know, that morning phone call where they said, you're going to take over as head coach. And, you know, here's your staff, here's your new staff. And we expect X, Y, and Z to happen over the next uh, couple of weeks. But I knew at my core, I was ready for it. You know, I was thrust into that position. It's not easy. The players are looking at you. They're not sure what to expect. The organization, the media, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty surrounding a situation like that. But I got to work right away. You know, I probably didn't sleep for a whole month, didn't eat. You know, I just found my way through uh, that experience. But I believe I was I was prepared for it. You know, I, I always thought about being a head coach, you know, during that period in, in Orlando, but you never know what it's like until you're thrown into the, into the fire. And I think it was, you know, how I handled that, that group, that experience in Orlando that maybe a, opened up some eyes throughout the NBA that opened up some opportunities for me down the road. And I think maybe some people started to say, this guy could be a potential head coach someday. What have you learned about how a head coach in the NBA commands the respect of his players. You don't just walk in and have it, right? You earn it. They have to believe in you. How do you get it? Well, it's consistency. I mean, you have to bring it every day. They, the, the players have to feel you every single day. When you walk in the room, uh, they feel your spirit. You have to know your stuff. These players are very smart. You can't BS your way through a, a practice, a drill, a scouting report, if you walk in the room and you're not prepared, these players will sniff it out. And if you're inconsistent in your work, if you're inconsistent in your message, it won't go over well with players. So I've said from day one, I want to be a coach, a head coach that's very clear, where our players know what they, what I stand for, what's expected of them, and hold everybody 1 through 15 accountable to that. If there's gray area, if there's uncertainty in your program, you're not going to last very long. And even if you do all this correctly, Woj, it doesn't mean you're going to have success. You know, but at least you can control a program that's run the right way, that's consistent, that you're held accountable, that you have a culture that is healthy, uh, where players feel safe, they're able to be open and vulnerable. If you have those pieces, it gives you a chance to win in this league. It doesn't mean you will, but it gives you a chance. How did you grow up in New Mexico? What, what was your childhood like there? West side of Albuquerque. Uh, grew up a uh, single-parent home. Mom raised my sister and I. You know, I watched my mom work two, three, four jobs at a time just to make it work for us, to put, to put food on the table. And But I never felt like we were without. I felt loved, supported. I played in youth sports, um, but I watched my mom's work ethic. Um, she just she just got stuff done. 
no matter what, she just figured it out. And I think those are qualities that I'll take with me and I've had with me, you know, since my early days that we just figured out as a coach, um, as a father, as a friend, you know, I just, just try to get stuff done no matter what we need to get done. And I watched my mom do that, you know, but yeah, I grew up west side of Albuquerque, but my world really turned in sixth grade when my mom found the school called Albuquerque Academy, private school on the east side of town. We knew nothing about this school, um, but she said, look, you have to test in academically. We couldn't afford it, but there was financial aid that uh, was awarded to us. And But getting to Albuquerque Academy, it really changed my world, my perspective, my mentality changed. I was around higher standards, higher academic standards, athletic standards, and it really forced me to work. These teachers forced me to work. It was not easy. These coaches forced me to work. They demanded of me. And I was around different, you know, different families. You know, I was around accomplished families, doctors, lawyers. College was, you know, never a question at this, at this school. It was just a matter of where you were going. So my mentality started to change. Uh, my work ethic changed. I really learned how to work there. And when I got to college, it had prepared me. I, I felt like my high school years, my middle school years were, were tougher than my years in college. So I, I owe a lot to that school. I owe a lot to my, my mother who helped me find that place. And I credit her for just surrounding me with good people. The guys you grew up, that you grew up with in Albuquerque, did most of them go to college? Did most of those guys stay around town? What, what was the group that you, mm-hmm. when you transferred schools, did that sort of change your world? It changed my world. I mean, the group I was running around with in my neighborhood, good guys, but you know, they weren't thinking about college and I'm not sure any of them made it to college, but every single day, you know, we got in the car, went up to Academy and, you know, the expectations were raised and, you know, obviously my world changed forever there. Um, but I stay in touch with a lot of my Albuquerque Academy friends, very accomplished men and women today. Um, it's a, it's a high academic standard, but, um, it really prepared me for where I am today. You go to University of San Diego, which has become a like a cradle of NBA coaches, <laughs> executives, like right Miami of Ohio for right. college football coaches, right. Right? right? But University of San Diego has become Emerson College for front office guys, right? Yeah, yeah, good San old Diego, Sam Press, yeah, yeah. But San Diego for you were around either around or you knew guys who had that connection to USD. Right. It was helpful. Absolutely. I mean now when I picked USD, I had no idea about this NBA you know, connection, but for such a small school, a school that's, we're not thought of as a basketball school. We can't really play the game. We can coach the game or, you know, front office, uh, in the NBA, <laughs> but we definitely can't play, you know, Fizdale, Fizz is, I'll give Fizz, he's a better player than I was, but, you know, to find a place like that, it's just, it was just fortunate, you know, the fortune to find a, a small college like that, that had NBA ties and NBA connections, you know, was was a real fortune. But as I said earlier, I still didn't pursue the NBA, even with all the connections at USD. It was really about college basketball for me. The door opened into San Antonio, though, and that's where that's probably the secondary area of my life where things changed for me. What was it like when you get to the Spurs, when you walk in and you go to work there? What do you notice right away that's different from what you've been around? 
there's a level of discipline every single day. There's really a level of discipline to do your job, to know your job. And if you don't know your job, it's expected to figure it out. Nobody's going to hold your hand there. Either you, you sink or you swim, but this is in, you know, there's a professionalism every single day that you come to do your job and to get better. And I think you see that on the floor. You see that in the front office. You see that in the coaching staff. People every single day, no matter the hours they put in in that environment, they're expected to get better and find a way to help the team get better. The other thing is you just get over yourself. You know, Pop has said this over and over. He wants people that get over themselves, and it's true. When you walk in that door, you know, you leave your ego at the door. Uh, you walk in there, and you're you're one of 30. You know, you're, you're one of 30 people in, in that uh, in that building that's valued. Um, the players get over themselves. The staff gets over themselves. If you have something to bring to the table, bring it to the table. Uh, there's an openness there. Pop, you know, as I said earlier, wants to hear everybody's voice. If you have something that can help the organization, he's open to it. And I'm not sure that ha- happens in every organization, whether that's in athletics, um, that's in the corporate world. You know, there, there's managers, there's owners, there's CEOs that they want to just figure it out on their own. And in this place, it's a collaborative effort. Everybody's involved. Everybody's pulling together, whether it's a playoff series, uh, getting ready for a film session, whether it's in the draft room, uh, whether it's in free agency. Many times on the floor, Pop would go to the team and say, what do you guys want to do? How do you guys feel? So he empowered the players. He empowered his staff. That's something I will take with me to uh, Charlotte is I want my staff to have a voice. I want to empower them. I want our players to have a voice. I want to empower their group. When you empower these people, they bring it more the next day. They go harder for you the next day. When Pop, I remember sitting one day with Pop in the film room. I was a video coordinator. It was coming off a bad loss. I think it was a Utah game, bad loss at Utah. We, we fly in the night before. And, you know, we sit down. He knocks on my door at probably 6 or 6.30 in the morning. I knew it was one of those days. It was just going to, you know, we got beat up physically in Utah. And he comes in. He says, let's start watching film. So he and I go into the film room. And at that point, we didn't have a great relationship. We were just kind of new. I was a new video coordinator. And he, you know, we start watching the film. And he's saying, hey, put that on. Put that on. I want to show that to the team. So I'm thinking about putting my edit together. But he starts asking me, he says, what do you think? What would you do here? How's this player playing? And I remember being, you know, sitting there for about 20 to 30 minutes going, wow, he's asking me what I think. Again, so we left that room, but the next day I said, I came in stronger the next morning. I started to put more time into my film sessions because I never knew if he was going to ask me again. I wanted to nail the next one. And it was that sort of empowerment that pushed us all to be better. The time you've spent in Charlotte now, it is a tremendous NBA city. It has supported that team. The team left and came back, and it didn't leave because people didn't care about it or didn't draw on fans. You know, you replace a coach, Steve Clifford, who had success there and is one of the, you know, considered one of the very good coaches in the league. There's been injuries, there's been, you know, the roster at times has been challenged. But when you go around that city, you see fans, you 
meet with, I imagine, you know, maybe your season ticket holders, those right. things. What, what right. do you feel? What, what do you see in here? I really feel an, an energy there. I feel like this place is about to burst. They're, they're, they're hungry and they're thirsting for a winner. This team hasn't won a playoff series in 19 years. Uh, I can't even imagine what this place will look like after a playoff series win. And that's what motivates me every single day. I feel that motivation, that fire every single day to deliver a playoff series. Because I think I remember growing up watching those Charlotte Hornet teams on, on TV, never being there in person, but there was a buzz about them. You know, there, there was a, a fire in that, in that arena. It was a fun group. And I have felt that just being in Charlotte, you know, talking to fans, season ticket holders, spending time with Coach Rivera and the Panthers. We want that city on fire. We want them on fire for both teams. So I, I like that partnership with even the Panther group. But this is a basketball area. They love their basketball, college basketball. They're uh, uh, an intelligent group that understands basketball, values good basketball. So I feel a pressure to deliver that. And I'm excited that I inherit a team that was well-coached. Um, there's a foundation there on both ends of the floor that we'll build on. There's a roster in place of both young talent, veteran talent. You know, that excites me. There's some young pieces that can get better. And we have an all-star. You know, you, you say that, and I think it's really interesting because a lot of guys, when they come in somewhere, immediately just start to tear down what was there and say, oh, I inherited I mean, you could just look and say, listen, they had back-to-back 36-win seasons. That's not very good in the NBA. And say, you know, uh, I got to change the culture and this mm-hmm. and this. And, like, like sometimes it's okay to say, the guy before did a pretty good job, right? Like, yeah. you don't hear that all the time. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I, I respect what coaches do in this league. It, it's a hard job. And I come out of a very... Uh, fortunate situation in San Antonio. I've seen the best for the last 20 years. But I also recognize other places and how difficult it is to build something. And, you know, the last group did well. They they produced probably not the wins they wanted, but they were in games. In fourth quarter, they were relevant. Now it's about making that next step and winning those close games. And that's my job is to build on the defense, build on the offense, and now help, you know, deliver in the fourth quarter with the right pieces, uh, the right style of play. We're going to tweak some things, do things differently. But I recognize that there there is a foundation in place that we're going to build off. That excites me. I inherit a pretty good locker room. Guys that, you know, there's a veteran group in there. And I think adding Tony to that mix of core guys in Kemba, Marvin, MKG is going to be a real exciting group to coach. I remember Steve Clifford saying that when he took over and he was building his relationship with Kemba Walker. He invited Kemba to come to Summer League, and he didn't expect him to play, or but just to be there. And right away, Kemba got into drills when they were in practice, and he was doing every drill with the team, and it set such an example. He wasn't quite an all-star yet, but he was an established player right. in the league. And I, I'm not sure there's a player in the league who means more to their organization, their team, their fan base, and just look right. at the plus-minus on the floor. Right. Than Kemba Walker. I mean, right? the fortune to be the first-time head coach to have Kemba Walker as your point guard—it's just a dream come true. I mean, he's such a great worker, great person, invested in the community, invested in this organization, wants to be there. You don't see that in today's NBA. That—that's—that's that's a rarity. 
in today, especially if that group isn't winning. A lot of these guys in today's NBA, they want out. They want to go team up with the next guy, the next team that can maybe make a playoff run. Kemba has said multiple times, I want to be here. I want to build something here with you. And when he said that to me, you know, I, I didn't take that lightly. I go, I'm in. I'm with you. I got your back. And he has worked every day since. Since I got this job, he's been in the gym. We've had eight to ten guys living in Charlotte right now, working Monday through Thursday, busting their tail, being around each other. I couldn't be more happy with where our organization is right now, having just taken over two months ago. Just seeing the work ethic, the character of these guys, that's very exciting for me. You know, it's a great point, JB, because... The term franchise player gets thrown around a lot, and I think it has different definitions to people. But to me, like, a franchise player is, there's so many guys in the league where when it's not going well, it's the coach, it's the front office, that this talent isn't good enough around me, get me somewhere else. And Kemba has been so, it's not, I want to go somewhere else. I want to do it here. And even when it's not going well, that's when you need me more. And that's Mm. when I'm more invested. And I Mm. think... Sometimes players don't all understand that. That being a franchise player means in the good times and in the bad. Right. And they need you more when it's not going well. And here's a player who, by market standards, is, is underpaid. And his next contract probably be for more. But, but you know, he signed when he signed that extension around $12 million. That's what sort of the good starting point guards were getting. And he kept getting better. And you've never heard him complain about where his number is or any of those things that some guys might just do. Right. And it's rare. It's rare. It's rare. And, you know, we see that throughout the league, but I think it just speaks to Kemba's character as a person, uh, as a player that he, uh, he values his place. He loves the city of Charlotte. He loves the Hornets. And that has just brought so, you know, a lot of excitement to, uh, our group, to our fan base. And we're going to build off of that. And that's the type of culture. That's the type of character of people we want to lead our organization we want to always pull for each other we all want to be on the same page through the good through the bad we stick together and Ken was the best example of that for all of us we're going to have bad times in charlotte there's no perfect nba team we're going to have good times through the ups and the downs can we stay together and i think Ken was someone that will stick stick with us through the good and the bad you know front office and head coach we have to stick together through the good and the bad you know, that's not easy to do, especially in today's NBA, in today's social media, instant gratification. You know, they want to see change right now. Can we stay the course? And Kemba Walker has stayed the course through all this, and he has helped us, and he wants to be here. So I really look forward to that. JB, this this is great, man. I'm glad we got to visit. and uh, uh, maybe, maybe I'll see you down in training camp this year. Yeah, you're welcome anytime. All right. All right. Great, great stuff, you. man. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to my guest today, Charlotte Hornets coach, James Borrego. We'll catch you next time.